So this is what I want to show you. So here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. Many theologians believe that this was actually Paul's second letter that was written to the church. And the reason why is because in this letter, there's several times where, where Paul is saying, in my former book or in my former letter, I spoke of these things, or he's addressing things, or he's even answering questions to things that they've already replied to him. But there's something going on in the church that is, that is heavy on Paul's heart, and so here is where he's writing, and he's rebuking the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul is writing to a church where there is a sin going on in the church that they have become so arrogant, so presumptuous, that they've let it continue. And it is a sin that he says that not even the pagans do. Because see, even the Levitical law said that you are never to have relations not only with your mother, but with your stepmother. And here there's a man in the church that they're not doing anything about it, and he is having the connotation as a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife. And Paul is saying, how can you be so arrogant, so calloused, so desensitized that this is going on and something that people that are lost in darkness would not even condone, and you are allowing it to happen. You should be grieving, you should be mourning over this, and you need to remove the person from the church. You need, you need to remove him so that something will take place. Because see, what happens is if something remains in our life that shouldn't be there, if we don't do anything about it, guess what? We become hard to it, and we just eventually accept it. It's like the English poet from the 17th century, Alexander Pope said, referring to sin, first we endure it, then we pity it, then we embrace it. It's kind of like, you know, there are several projects in my house that there was a time where I said, I'm going to get to this, and then after a while, just because of busyness, I don't, and now I walk by it every single day, and I haven't done anything about it yet. For, for example, a couple years ago when I uh, moved into my house, one of the very first things I did was I called Jesse up, and I said, Jesse, I need you to help me put in some wood floors. If you ever put wood floors or tile in, you know that to do that, you have to take off your baseboard off the bottom of your, 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 at the bottom of your floors. That's why it's called the baseboard, for those that didn't know why it's called that. Well, anyway, so, you know, you do the wood floor, you put the baseboard back on, and see, here's what happened was Jesse was good enough to help me, you know, shoot uh, with his nail gun all the baseboard back in, and I, you know, we'd been working on this for like a week, and so I go, I will get to the wood putty and the paint here next week when I get an opportunity to do it. And so, guess what? A week goes by, and I still notice that you can see the nail holes, and there's not any wood putty. And a couple weeks go by, and what happens is you start doing life, and guess what you start to do? You kind of wish that, it had, that you could do it, but you just haven't got the energy to get around to it. And so, two years later, here we are, and if you come over to my house, got a beautiful wood floor, got the base back on, but you see little nail holes all over the place because along the, and this is in your house, there are projects that you know that you want to do them, but you just kind of have learned to live with them, right? Well, it's the same way with sin in our life. When God convicts us of sin, if we do not do something about it, there can be areas in our life that we know are sinful, but we can just go, you know what, I'm just going to endure it. I, I kind of have pity for it. I, I maybe kind of like it. I don't want it, but I kind of like it, and we don't deal with it, and after a while, we just kind of become hard to it, and we've embraced it. And that's why even compromise is this slippery slope. 
because we start accepting things and we start drifting and drifting and drifting and we find ourselves in a position where we never thought we would be because we've embraced things along the way and we're far from God. And that's what's going on in this church. And he's saying, how could you be so arrogant, so presumptuous for this to continue on? You should be mourning over this. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is where Paul's writing them again, and he's addressing this situation in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And here's the exciting news. Evidently, when this man was rebuked, there was mourning that led to repentance that led to joy. And I'm going to let you see that here in a second as we, as we uh, go through Scripture. But he says in 2 Corinthians 7, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation for this passage. But verse 8, he says, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful for you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. Now listen, he, what he's saying is, I'm not glad that this caused you pain. I don't glory, that's not what I'm wanting, but I am glad that the pain caused you to come to a point of sorrow and repentance that would lead to change. This is the desire of every single parent's heart when we're disciplining our children. We don't desire for our children to hurt, but what we long for is that pain that they're experiencing when you spank them, or you put soap in their mouth, or whatever it is that you've done, that that pain will cause them to see and to repent and for there to be change. Why? Because we want that to prevent a greater hurt that will lead to destruction that might be permanent, right? And he's saying, this is what I'm longing for. So here he goes on in verse, uh, he says, I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 9, it was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. See, this is the, God wants us to experience this. So you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. If you have the ESV or the NIV, it'll say, for there is a godly sorrow of sin that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, that leaves no regret. And I want you to know that is the biblical equation, the biblical formula for true salvation. Sorrow, godly sorrow, mourning, that leads to repentance, and this repentance leads to salvation. And I'm going to show you why here in a second. But here he says, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow lacks repentance and results in spiritual death. See, worldly sorrow is when I am sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry about the consequences, and so I, I'm not sorry about what I actually did. Might even want to go back to it, but I'm sorry just because I got caught, not because I realized what I had done is wrong. That's where a criminal, they're caught, and the reason why when they come back out, they do it again. It's because they weren't sorry for what they did. They were sorry that they got caught. And so now they just got to do the consequence. But he's saying that's the worldly kind of sorrow. That which just lacks repentance, no changing of the mind. And that's what leads to spiritual death. Verse 11, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. This is what happened with this man that had been rebuked for his sexual immorality. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me. He's saying that there's such a repentance and a reconciliation that's taken place that this man cannot wait to see Paul. And I don't know what was written in the letter back, but Paul's responding and saying, it's produced in you this longing to see me. Because there's been made right, they can't wait to see each other. And such a readiness to punish wrong. And you have showed that you've done everything necessary to make things right. There's been mourning. Jesus is saying there's got to be a godly sorrow, or he said, happy. You'll be happy if you mourn, because then you can be comforted. So I want you to write this down. Number one is this. Godly sorrow produces repentance. That's number one. Godly sorrow produces repentance. 
And just so you know, if you want to write beside that word repentance, uh, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. Metanoia. The word meta is what we kind of get the idea of metamorphosis, where a butterfly is changed. It, it turns into a butterfly from a caterpillar. Okay, meta it means an overarching change. The word noya means to know or to think. And repentance literally means to totally change the way that I think. So a godly sorrow of sin, meaning that I see my sin, what it really is all about, and so I totally change the way I think about my sin and my life and who's in control and so in that, by changing my mind about the way I think, it's going to lead to salvation. In fact, write, write this little phrase down, and it'll be up on the screen. You will never change your behavior if you don't change your thoughts. You will never change your behavior about something until the way you think about it changes. You know, a powerful illustration about this was several months ago when, when Dad was talking about this very same subject, and he was referring to the change in his mind over sugar. <clears throat> because he's come to a point in his life where uh, his body can no longer take sugar. It literally rejects it, and when he eats it, or when he consumes it, he gets a buzz, and he gets really sick. So even the doctor is saying, you, you can't put sugar in your body anymore because it's devastating to your body. It's devastating to all of our body, but to you, 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 will, you will immediately experience the consequences, and, and it could kill you. And so, he has totally changed the way he thinks about sugar. And guess what? It has totally changed his behavior. If you go out to eat with him, or if you're over at their house for dinner, dessert will come out, and he's just like, hands off. There, there's, there's, there's no even, am I going to have it? No way, because it's changed, he's changed the way he's thought about it, and so it's changed his behavior. It's the exact same thing with sin in our life. We don't change something until what we see it does and what it's cost, do we change the way we think that then there's going to be a change in our behavior. Which, think about this. How in the world can you come from, like we talked about last week, spiritual death. That's how we're all born. For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, we're all born spiritually dead. How in the world can I be saved just by praying a prayer or by going to church or by doing good works? See, Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins. It is a gift of grace. But for me to receive this gift, there's got to be a change in me. And it's, I, th there is a godly sorrow that brings repentance, a changing of my mind that leads to salvation. Okay, in fact, here's the, it's impossible for you to have the joy of your salvation. How can you have joy of something if you haven't mourned? And I'll tell you that the, to the level that you mourn is to the level that you'll be comforted. Uh, take your Bible and uh, turn over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> and Luke chapter 7 is the story of Jesus. He's gone to dinner and he's eating at the home of a Pharisee. Now a Pharisee was a, a religious leader. And while he's there eating with this Pharisee, this woman, hearing that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house, runs into the house. She falls at the feet of Jesus. And the, 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 the picture here is that this is a woman uh, that is a great sinner. Uh, maybe even a prostitute. Uh, a, a very sexually immoral. And she comes in. She falls at the feet of Jesus. And she is weeping uncontrollably. Controllably. She's mourning. And her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. And as they're falling on his feet, she's kissing his feet and taking her hair and wiping her tears off of his feet. And then she is even um, anointing his feet with an ointment. And the Pharisee's watching this, and he's like, in his heart, he's going, I, I can't believe this. If Jesus was really a true prophet, he would know exactly who this woman was and what she was all about, and he would not allow this to carry on. And of course, Jesus knows the man's heart. And so he says this in verse 40. We're going to start in verse 40. 
And Jesus uh, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, was, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say to him, or say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now this passage that, that I just read to you, I can tell you, I, I believe it, it hangs a lot of people up. And it's kind of, it's hung me up in my past. I'd read this and I'd think, you know, I really have lived a pretty good life. You know, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I mean, I was hearing about Jesus my entire life. In fact, I think even my very first sentence was, for God so loved the world. Because all I ever heard was about Scripture and about Jesus. And when I gave my life to the Lord, he pretty much saved me from bubble gum, and that was about it. Okay? And so I just figured, man, he's forgiven me of little, and so I only have the ability to love little. And I can't love God like someone like Brad Gilbert can, who you've heard come up here and tell his story and his struggle with alcoholism and his struggle in his early, in his first marriage and all those different things. I can't, I can't love I can't love God like Brad can love him. And when we look at this passage, usually we focus on the differences, the difference between the Pharisee and the prostitute. But I think we are missing really what's going on here. See, here are the similarities. First of all, they both owed a debt, right? It said there was one man that owed 500 denarii, one man who owed 50. They both owed... And it says they both couldn't pay. And then it even goes on to say they both were freely given, for forgiven. Okay? So they're both in the same boat. Now, Jesus in the story never says that this man owed 50, the Pharisee. He's just telling a story about two guys, one who owes 50, one who owes 500. Now, the Pharisee automatically is thinking, me compared to her, I don't know that much. She owes a lot, right? And when you, and I think a lot of church people, they think, well, you know, I'm really a, a pretty good person. I mean, I've, I've grown up in church my whole life. I've, I was baptized as a baby, or I was, I was you know, kind of confirmed. Uh, I, I haven't killed anybody. I, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done any of the big ones. Really, God didn't have to forgive me of, of much. So I'm kind of the 50. Well, let's say that 50 in this story is the Pharisee, even though I don't believe he is. Let's say he's the 50. And the Pharisee was one that, like I said last week, he, he memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, a Pharisee was one that fasted at least two times a week. Two days, did not eat, because he fasted and prayed. <coughs> he was a person that never missed tithing. They were trying to follow the law to a T. So if any of you guys are that good, okay, you are a 50, all right? Now, let's say that the, the prostitute, she's a 500, because he said 550, okay? And, or maybe we'll just equate anybody that's a 500 as, as a murderer or an abuser or just some kind of really, really bad crime that we would put up as the bad people, right? So you got 550. Now, what I want you to do is kind of think in your head, and I want you to give a number to what you are. Okay, so you got that number? Now, I have an ability. I can actually tell you what your real number is. 
It's kind of like when you go to Six Flags and, you know, they can guess your, your age or your weight within a couple numbers. I don't even need a couple numbers. I, I, can, I can get it right on the dot. Okay? And um, I'm uh, going to start with uh, Jesse. Okay? Jesse, buddy, you're a 500. All right? Um, Scott, you're a 500. Andy, you're a 500. Tim, you're a 500. Pastor Phil, you're a 500. We're all 500s. Every single one of us. This is, what, this is what he didn't understand. Every single one of us are a 500. There is no one that is righteous, right? Romans 3.10. And then if we even wanted to disagree, he goes, no, not one. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We all have sin. It even goes on in Romans 3, 10 to 12. Says, Our mouths are religious. They're open graves. It just stinks, whatever comes out. We're objects of wrath. We are all 500s. I look at this verse in James 2, verse 10. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Johnny Carson one time had Billy Graham on, and they were talking, and Johnny Carson kind of made the comment. Some of you guys that don't know who Johnny Carson is, Johnny Carson was the one that was the original late-night host. Jay Leno took his spot, okay? Johnny Carson had Billy Graham on, and he was talking to him about what it was like to be so righteous and to be so good. And Billy Graham said, no, 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 no. I'm not good. And, he, and, and so Johnny Carson kind of egging him on says, well, I mean, na name a Ten Commandment that you've broken. And Billy Graham said, I've, I've broken them all. And Johnny Carson goes, you've what? You've broken every Ten Commandments? I mean, Johnny Carson cannot believe this. Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist, is on his show, and he's going to get him confessing that he has committed, ev he's broken every Ten Commandment. And he goes, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, do not murder. Billy Graham, are you saying you have murdered somebody? Do not kill? And, and Billy Graham says, Jesus said that if you hold anger, and your heart towards someone, you've killed them. In fact, if you disobeyed just one, if you've not been able to just keep one, you're held accountable for the whole law. See, every single one of us, we are a 500. See, the lie is, well, I don't, I, I've only been forgiven just a little, so I can only love a little. No, 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 we've all been forgiven much. And the reason why this woman was able to forgive the love and the joy of the Father is because she had seen her sin, and so she's being comforted, and she is experiencing Jesus in a different way than this religious man is, is because he still thinks he's pretty good. Do you see, do you see what's going on here? Because you're only happy. God's power is only working through you when you see sin the way God sees it. That's what it means to, to confess. It means I see my sin the way God sees it. The destruction of it and what it costs. His, his son. That's what leads me to repentance. That leads me to have the ability to be transformed, to be saved, and I will never regret it. There's a lot of people that live their Christian life, they, they regret that they even made the decision to follow Christ in the first place. Because they've never been changed they've never mourned. Because there's, there's a godly of sorrow that leads to repentance. And that's what is happening for this woman right here in Luke chapter 7. Look at this verse in I Isaiah chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is the passage that Jesus is, when he opened up the scroll, this, he is the fulfillment of. This is what he's quoting. Verse 2, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them, those who mourn, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they, the ones that have mourned, may be called oaks of righteousness. See, there is a promise of joy, an oil of joy. Oil, a lot of times, is referred to the Holy Spirit that comes when I mourn. 
There must be a mourning over my sin. Let me show you another passage. Ezekiel chapter 9 uh, is a passage where Ezekiel is prophesying to the Israelites and to Jerusalem uh, about the destruction that is going to come because of their unrighteous deeds and their acts. They are, they're claiming to be the people of God, but they are living in sin. And so this is what he says in Ezekiel chapter 9. He says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Okay, you've heard of the mark of the beast? This is the mark of God. And he's saying, put a mark on every single man or woman or child, whoever it is, that is mourning. They're sighing and groaning over all the abominations that are taking place. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Why? Because see, there's a lot of people at the sanctuary that believe they have the mark, and they don't. Well, what's the mark? Well, this is what I believe the mark is. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, and that Greek word is the word pisteo, which means to totally put your reliance and trust in something. Because before, you're relying on yourself. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, the mark of God is the mark of himself. It's the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, who are the only ones that got it? Those who mourned and sighed, or groaned and sighed, who are mourning over their sin. The New Testament says there is a godly sorrow of sin that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, that leads to no regret. Nowhere in Scripture will you say it's by being baptized. Nowhere will you see it it's by, by, by praying a prayer. Jesus said it this way. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And here's what's interesting about that, is when Jesus is making that statement, the disciples do not equate the cross with Jesus. Because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. They don't go, Jesus, cross, cross, Jesus. They think, cross, horrible criminal. Horrible criminal, cross, right? And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself. You know why? Because you have nothing, you are spiritually bankrupt. See, earlier, one of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are the ones that will get the kingdom of God. See, that word poor in the Greek there, it is the word tukos. Now, the general word that is used for poor in the Greek language is the word panes. And that means working poor. It is those people that they are poor, but they are still working, and, and they are like, you know, working paycheck to paycheck. It is a working poor. They are doing something, but they are poor. Tukas is the word that means begging poor. And it's those that, through disability or being maimed or, or something that has happened, they literally cannot work. And so they were the class of people that they would kind of sit somewhere in the city up against the wall or in a corner or maybe off in darkness, and they would hold a mug out. I probably didn't have mugs back then, a cup or something like that. And they were totally dependent upon the mercy of someone to walk by and to drop a couple coins in their cup so that they could eat. But if it wasn't for the mercy of someone, they had nothing. And Jesus is saying, as happy are those who are the begging poor, for they are the ones that if it is not for the mercy of Jesus, can they be saved and have the kingdom of heaven? So there's a godly sorrow of sin that leads to repentance. And then number two, repentance produces joy. Repentance produces joy. It's promised. When you repent, joy comes. This is even, even David in his sin with Bathsheba, when he committed sin with Bathsheba, and then to cover that up, he kills Uriah, her husband, 
And so now he's an adulterer and a murderer. And in his sin, he's trying to hide it. He's miserable. And finally, the, the, the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes him. And then, after he's been rebuked, David experiences godly sorrow and mourning. In fact, this is what he says in, in Psalms 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, this is what David's saying about when he was, when he was not dealing with this sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now what I want you to do really quick is I want you to see what he was repenting of in, in Psalms 51. He, he goes through this whole, and you can read Psalms 51 sometime, because he goes through this whole passage, or he's, he's declaring his repentance before the Lord, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me, and against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in your judgment. And look down there at verse 12. This is what, Je what David says. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, when he was hiding it, when he wasn't dealing with it, when he was embracing it and just trying to hold on to it, he was miserable. He repents, and now he's receiving the joy of his salvation. And so that's why he can even say in Psalms 32, Blessed, happy is the man whose sins are covered. Not him hiding them, not him covering them. They're covered by the blood of Jesus, by the righteousness of God. They've been covered. And, and so there's joy. Um, I heard a story once of, uh, and this is a true story, I heard this story of this man that had a carpet cleaning business. And uh, he had hired a man, it was the first man's, uh, it was the man's first day on the job, and uh, he had showed him how to clean the carpets, and he had left to move on to another house to work with another man that was taking care of that house. And he came back at the end of the day, and he was inspecting all of the work that this new employee had, had been doing. And he walked into a room, and in the room, he found a stain that was missed. And so he calls the, the new worker in, and, he, and he's standing over the stain, and he kind of positions his feet like this, where the stain is right in front of him. And the man walks in, and he said to him, uh, what is our job to do? And he said, uh, to clean carpets. And by doing that, we must remove stains, right? Yes. And he said, what is that? And the man looked down and looked up and said, that's a stain. And, he, and so the carpet cleaner guy that owned the business goes, that is right. You are correct. I'm glad you can see that because I can work with you. See, see, our job is to get stains. And if you can't see stains, I can't work with you. So if you can, if you can see that and you know that's a stain, I can work with you. So the guy said, yeah, I, I can see it. He said, okay, go get the equipment. We need to clean this. And so he walks back out to his car, and he's getting into his truck. And right as he gets into his truck, he says that the Holy Spirit just threw into his mind a conversation that he had had with his wife that morning. And he, in their discussion, had had some unkind words. And the Holy Spirit said, what is that? And he said, it's sin and pride. And it said, like the Holy Spirit just said to him, that's right. I can work with you. Because see, the Holy Spirit will only and can only work with us in our lives and in our sin when we see sin the way he sees it. You know what the Holy Spirit's called a lot in Scripture? He is the comforter. Happier those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. See, the Holy Spirit's job is to comfort us and to lead us and to guide us. And in our life, what he wants to be able to do is go, what is that? And, and if we can see it like he sees it, he's go, 
I can work with that. If we don't, what does the Bible say he does in regards to our sin? Instead of comforting us, what does he do? He grieves. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we embrace and allow sin to remain in our life. And that was going on in this church in Corinth where Paul's saying, you're being so arrogant in this area. Remember, he's talking to believers. How can you allow this to go on? You're being arrogant. You need to be mourning over this. And when they did, there was joy and reconciliation and wrong was made right. So, number three, how do you have godly sorrow? How do you have godly sorrow? This week I was looking through just verses, typing in the word mourn on my computer, and different verses were popping up, and this is the verse uh, that I found. It's Zechariah 12, 1, and it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. Okay? And who is pierced for our transgressions? Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who's the only son here? Jesus. Who's the firstborn amongst creation? Jesus. This is in the Old Testament. And it's saying that the way this is going to happen is that he's going to pour out his spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will mourn. Okay, and I'm reading this, and I do understand this in Scripture. That it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. See, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of grace that opens my eyes that I am able to see my sin, to see what I have done, and to see what it has cost, cost me separation from God for eternity, and I am in a condition where I am totally spiritually dead. And there is nothing I can do to resurrect my spirit from death to life, not any good works. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit, but it also is by supplication. And, and, I, and, I, and I picture where David says, Search me, O God. Search me. And see if there be any, any wicked way in my life. And then, cleanse me with hyssop, creating me a pure heart, O God. When the Holy Spirit in my life says, what is that? Immediately, I want to be at a point in my life where I'm like, that is sin. Great. I can work with you in that. Now let's deal with that. But my question for you today is, have you come to a point in your life? Do you still think that you are a 50? Do you still think you're like this Pharisee? Or he, I mean, that, that's not what he was like. That's what he thought. Or do you realize that every single one of us, we have been forgiven much. But we're not experiencing it. Or we will not experience that much forgiveness until we come to a point where we mourn over our sin. Uh, I want to close by just uh, telling you this story. Before I tell you a story, I, I just say, see, remember at the beginning I said, would you rather experience God's power in your life or live based off your feelings? And, and here, here's the thing with this. I will never experience God's happiness the way he wants me to experience it based off his power working in my life until I come to this point. I can't. And so if I don't, I am just, I'm just doomed to live it based off my feelings. But I want to tell you the story of this, this man by the name of John from England. Um, his mother died when he was seven. His father remarried and sent him away to a school for a few years. And at age 11, he left school and joined his father's ship to start life as a seaman. His early years were one continuous round of rebellion and wickedness. John eventually became the captain of a slave ship, but was such a cruel and vicious man that his own crew mutinied and threw him overboard. Extracted from the waters, the slave trader himself became a slave. In 1748, while returning to England from Africa, 
during a particularly stormy voyage, when all appeared lost, he began reading Thomas A. Kemp's book called Imitation of Christ. The message of Christ contained in this book and the conviction of the Holy Spirit led to his eventual conversion and personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Eventually freed, he returned to England, married, studied for the ministry, and at age 39, he entered the pastorate. He often used the story of his own life and his services, and it was so effective that people began to call him the old converted sea captain. Pastor John would sing hymns in his church that would express simple, heartfelt faith during a time when most churches had monotonous, repetitious, and void of really any kind of true worship singing as the commonplace. When he couldn't find enough hymns, he started writing his own. And over a period of years, he and a friend produced the famous Only Hymns hymnal, which contains 349 hymns, 282 of which he wrote himself. He pastored a total of 45 years. In his late years, at the age of 82, John died and went home to be with the Lord. But until that time, he never ceased to marvel at God's mercy and grace that had so dramatically changed his life. In the last years of his life, while preaching, he would proclaim in a loud voice, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. In the churchyard in Oldney, England, you will find his name on a tombstone, and on it you will also find this inscription, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Now, a far greater testimony outlives Newton in his life, and that of all the hymns he wrote, the most famous is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Now, let me say that a little different way. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to mourn, and grace that taught my fears relieved, and grace my mourning was comforted." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. John Newton was a 500. I am a 500. And, and if you come to that point in your life where, where, as John said in his last years, he said it like this. There's two things that I know. There's two things I remember, even though my memory is failing me. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. The only way you come to that point is by seeing your sin the way God sees it and mourning over your sin because that's how you can be saved. And this is how we're going to end today. I want you to stand up and we're going to just sing this song that we've sung many times.
how we how about we close like this? As the Holy Spirit says in your life, what is that? See, he can't work unless you're able to, to see it how he sees it. Because he can work with that when you come to a point of mourning over your sin. Because see, this isn't just the answer of how you be saved. It's also how you live a happy life. Right? And so let's do this. Uh, I just encourage let's get on our knees. You want to say anything? I pastor you as a daddy and as a grandpa. Because many of you have I've had the joy of leading you to Christ in the last 21 years. And so try to hear what I'm about to say. See, Phil teaches you as a young man that in Christ he loves you and he loves the Word and he's teaching you. And uh, yesterday something happened that I pray for and long for for our church family. And that is that we could come to be a church family that God could work with us. I mean, what Phil has shared this morning has been profound. Uh, Jesus often said, do you have ears to hear? But what he shared is profound. And this little story that he told about the carpet cleaner, I don't want you to ever forget that. Just right now, try to tuck that down deep. Because the reason why many church people, and some of you have asked me, what are you writing this book about? This is what I'm writing about. Because after 42 years in ministry, I realized that most people, not just in this church, I've had the privilege of preaching in hundreds of churches over my lifetime and serving in many. God can't work with people that come to church, most people. Because when His Holy Spirit convicts us, we don't see our sin. If you're having struggles in your marriage, it's because you don't see your sin yet. Well, I know you're an expert in seeing the other person's sin, but God can't work with you if you can't see your sin. And yesterday, some, all of you that were here yesterday in the marriage conference, raise your hand. So look around at these people. Keep your hand up. Ask any of these people what I'm about to say. There's enough folks with their hands right. Oh, I wish all of you would have been here because we had a holy moment. I mean, it was all great from 8 o'clock to 12, but we had a holy moment. And, and, and I stood and wept when I saw it among our people and among people I didn't even know. There were about 400 people here. They had what's called cardboard testimonies. And people had the courage to get up. You can be seated. This will take another minute, and then we'll dismiss. Thank you, Philip. That was tremendous. Amen? That was tremendous. But people had the courage to come up and on a big cardboard about from here, and we're going to do it. We've never done that in our church. We're going to do it sometime. And they had the courage to state, this is what I was before Christ. And there were some horrible sins up here. There were 500s up here. See, they saw their sin, and they said, God, I need you to work with me. And God said, I can work with you. You're, you're addicted to pornography. You're a murderer. You, you, you've been a part of abortion. You, you've been unfaithful to your spouse. You, you've gone through divorce. You're dishonest, you're a cheat, 
I can work with that, the Father says. And then they turn the cardboard over and they say, but now, in the grace of Jesus, I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm pure. I'm righteous. And then Joe White put a cross together and he stood that cross up and he said you know in marriages so often we never go anywhere we can't forgive each other we we can't love each other we can't be patient we can't be kind because we're ever living in our past and today you need to realize why Christ died he paid it all he rose again he sent his Holy Spirit will you let him work with you And they lifted that cross, and Joe said, you write today. And there was a little card given to everyone when they came in. They said, you have your own cardboard now. You write on one side what you were. And then you receive the blood, the shed blood of Christ, and repent, mourn over your sin, receive Christ in your life, and write on the other side of that card now what you can be, forgiven and reconciled, walking in the Spirit. And you come, and you throw that card up here at the foot of the cross. And the cross was standing. And then we started the music. And how many people do you think came? At first, no one. And finally, one man and his wife didn't come with him. He came and walked up these steps and threw his card down. And finally another, and another, and another, till it appeared that everyone came. And Joe White, we've been friends for since the boys were freshmen in college, so 20 years, because they all served at Kanakuk. and Joe at the end said, wasn't that great, Phil? I said, yeah, it was great, but this is what I know. And I'm speaking to all of you that were here yesterday and came forward. I said, it won't last an hour. If those people that came, because I'm telling you, Joe, some miracles happened today. There were some couples that came today that I've been working with them for years in a lot of trash and garbage, and it won't last two hours if they don't practice what Gary Smalley talked about, that every day he humbles himself and he becomes poor in spirit and he mourns over his condition apart from the grace of Jesus. If they don't honor one another instead of looking at all of their rubbish, they'll be right back in the pit. And that's what's called discipleship. That's what's called care groups. That's what's called Bible studies. That's what's called we need each other. But you don't, you know why we don't like to get with each other? Because we don't want to see that stain, do we? Are you tracking with me? And every word I'm saying is because I love you. And it breaks my heart as I'm getting older and older. For some of you that I love in Jesus, and you know that, I'll be there for you for whatever. But you don't want to look at your stain. So God will never do anything. And we as a church family can't do anything for you or with you.
because you don't want to look at your stain. Let's just bow our heads. Just, just shut your eyes. I think one of the reasons why we shut our eyes is so we will not be distracted by other things. Right now, don't, don't think of anyone else's stain. Several this week, I'd encouraged to come to this marriage conference, and they came back and said, well, my spouse won't come with me. We'll keep coming to church. We'll keep doing our little thing, but we don't even want to get into a situation. We might have to look at our stain. God loves you. God loves you. You can never be delivered from your stain till you see it and you're that beggar that Phil talked about that you can't do anything about that stain. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're bankrupt. And you need Jesus. And when you see the cost of your stain, the shed blood and suffering of Christ, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart more than any other stain that anyone else has put upon you. It's your stain before God. And you mourn. And until you mourn for that, you will never truly be forgiven and healed. And that's why so many sinners have never been healed. The cancer is still there. Would you let God Almighty today deal with your stain? Would you cry out, oh God, I am undone. Woe is me. Forgive me and cleanse me. And I want to invite you, church family. We, we don't have cards to write on. We don't have a cross to throw the card at. But would you like to get up and as we close today, just come forward, just like those folks came forward yesterday. Just come forward now. We're going to make the front and altar as our closing prayer. Whether you want to kneel here or stand here, we're just going to say, God, I want you to deal with my stain. And church family, I'm inviting all of you. I want to deal with my stain. I don't want to just hear a great word and go out and say, Oh, Phil, that was great. That was great. When we do that and don't deal with our stain, we deceive ourselves. We hear the word, but we don't deal with the stain. Let God deal with the stain in your life this morning that you can live with His joy. Live with His joy. Father God you are so merciful to us you are so patient with us Father it amazes us it amazes us our stubbornness our slowness our blindness to seeing as you see. 
oh father we learn as the Pharisees how to do church how to act noble we have our secret lives we go home and we speak unkindly we speak impatiently we don't speak at all oh God thank you this morning for letting us see our stain apart from you we are nothing and father this morning we praise you for your promise if we confess our sin you are faithful and just to cleanse us cleanse us from all stains and we come this morning and we thank you oh god for opening the eyes of our hearts that apart from you were nothing and we claim the shed blood of jesus christ for forgiveness and cleansing of all stains of all unrighteousness Lord we have one of two ways to live this week by your spirit or by our sinful nature Lord we choose by your spirit we submit our life every day to the authority of your word we surrender our life to your Holy Spirit Father, we settle. We are yours. And in the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we go to love people and to share Jesus with people. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Father, we can live this word today. We thank you for being our joy, Lord. As we grieve over what you grieve over, sinfulness, Lord, we rejoice in what you rejoice in, righteousness. And we thank you for being our joy, our strength, that we can live faithful. Lord, there's hurts and heartaches and challenges, and you know them all, and we thank you for that. And we cast all our cares upon you, whatever we're going through. We praise you that your grace is sufficient. And we are weak, but you are strong. And we praise you, Lord, we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Father, for any today, that for whatever reasons, they're just not able to see their stain. They've looked away so long. I just thank you for you being the God of all love and mercy to continue to love and hammer them, Father, with your love. I pray they wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. I pray you'd get them out of bed and let them look at their stain and truly repent. Lord, let them no longer live in religion, no longer live in church, no longer live in a past prayer, no longer think anything they've done, but Lord, let them see their stain and let there be mourning and brokenness and repentance. And we praise you. We praise you. Just praise the Lord for his grace and goodness in your life this morning. Praise him. Praise you, praise you, praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Hug one another. Greet one another. Praise the Lord. I love you all trembles at his voice how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God
No.